This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. From a property perspective, it's difficult to imagine a more legally interesting year than 2020, but I suspect there is one on the horizon in 2021. For today's property patter, I am joined by Guy Featherstone Hall QC and Toby Bonsey of Falcon Chambers, together with Laura Bushaway of our real estate disputes team here at Charles Russell Speechley's. Guy, I know you've been asking around Chambers to see what property cases we have coming up during 2021, and we're going to have a look at some of those. But on a general note, perhaps I could just ask you and Toby to give listeners a flavour of the cases crossing your desks at the moment. For example, is the majority of your workload now COVID-related, or is there still plenty of business as usual going on? It's quite interesting, Emma, isn't it? If If all you did was listen to the BBC, you get the impression that nothing's happening, the economy's ground to to a halt, it's all doom and gloom. Um, And then you look out of your window in chambers where I am, and there are lots of cranes carting things around. There's lots of work going on in London, at any rate. And the sort of things I see crossing my desk are all development-related, so there's plenty of stuff steaming ahead, quite apart from COVID, which I know we're going to talk about. And is that your experience as well, Toby? Is there still plenty of business as usual going on for you? Yes, I'd say so. Um, for me, it's been mostly business as usual, um, save that most hearings have been conducted remotely. Uh, in my experience, the tribunals and the courts have been pretty good at conducting remote hearings. It's been reasonably effective. So to give you a flavour, I've had adverse possession and service charge matters go ahead in the FTT, telecoms things in the upper tribunal, uh, enfranchisement and nuisance disputes in central London County Court, and those have all gone ahead perfectly acceptably. Um, I did have uh, a 54 Act renewal last year, which raised uh, valuation questions arising out of how you deal with pandemic-related restrictions um, when the valuation date would fall within a period of lockdown or, or during the pandemic. That settled, as these things often do, but it did raise interesting valuation questions. There have been, I think, a noticeable increase in cases where tenants have struggled to pay their rent or service charges. But what's actually been more notable for me, I think, is what has not been litigated in 2020, because the stay of possession claims has meant that a lot of the general property-related disputes that we'd ordinarily deal with either haven't been issued in the first place, or they've fallen into the stay in the resultant backlog. So I think this year we might expect a rather larger number of possession cases following the lifting of the stay. Yes, I totally agree with that. And actually, it was one of the few things that did make me laugh at the start of the pandemic, which was um, how the courts did seem to jump from the 17th century to the 21st century in about the space of a fortnight. Uh, you know, sort of uh, within no time, I was hearing about these Zoom hearings. And I was like, a few minutes ago, I couldn't file an e-bundle. <laughs> now I can do everything online. Um, so it's, I mean, it's, you know, hopefully there, ha- there have been positives to come out of this whole experience. And, and I think, you know, this this move to remote hearings and making things more efficient and hopefully more cost-effective for litigants. You know, perhaps we'll see a bit more of that. Um, And as you said, Guy, much as I would love to leave COVID to one side, um, I think we'd probably better address it um, head on. And you mentioned there, Toby, you know, about the fact that there have been uh, a number of arrears claims going through the courts during 2020. um, And I think we await the outcome of some potentially, well, I think there's one potentially interesting summary judgment application guy that uh, was heard at the end of last year, and we're waiting for the judgment on that. Um, What sort of interesting issues is that likely to cover? 
I think pretty well all of them, Emma, what the um, what the court did in that case was to group together all the various rent claims before it with different offences. So we had four lots of defendants arguing everything under the sun, really. We had frustration, we had implied term. It, this is a, perhaps oddly a rare case where a landlord had insured precisely against uh, various claims stemming from communicable disease pandemics. So uh, what the tenants were saying, in addition to all the usual arguments, was, well, we're paying for insurance cover here. You were obliged to insure. In fact, you have insured for exactly what's happened, and rent ought to be suspended in those circumstances. You can imagine the insurance company gave a very dusty answer to that. You know, it said, tenants can't just choose not to pay their rent and then say, cover me. That's not a loss. And in order for it to be a loss, the rent cessor has to be triggered in these leases. And it's not, because the rent cessor is only triggered where there's damage to buildings of some sort. And of course, there isn't with uh, this pandemic. So that's a very, very novel argument. And, um, and then, of course, in addition to that, we had all the usual range of frustration implied term arguments. It was only summary judgment. It played out over four days in the end, and we're waiting for judgment. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. And I obviously won't comment on what my views are as to what might happen. But yeah, no, I think we were put through the mill with all the possible arguments there. No, understood. And and actually, you know, again, this is something, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time being a bit critical of courts, but I have to say, again, this is another example where the courts have been quite pragmatic, you know, grouping things, things together, trying to give people certainty and move the market forward. Um, you know, that's one thing, again, I think it has, you know, tried to do reasonably well during the pandemic, obviously, in the insurance field, we've seen, you know, the grouping together of those sorts of cases. Um, so, yes, well, I, I wait with great interest for this case, because as you say, you know, we've been seeing all these arguments um, so it'd be very interesting to hear how the court will treat them. Um, I'm particularly uh, sort of, I say, interested, perhaps I should say astounded, um, to, to see frustration popping its head out. Uh, but, you know, perhaps that's just me. Um, I mean, it's certainly a concept that really arises in connection with leases. And people uh, might have thought that following the Canary Wharf decision we had in 2019, uh, that perhaps frustration wouldn't apply in the context of COVID. So I'm interested to think about how these situations compare. Um, Laura, do you think there's any scope for tenants to try raising frustration arguments in relation to COVID? Or is that just dead and done? I think it's going to be quite difficult. I mean, just as a reminder to those listening, um, frustration is an unexpected event, which is not caused by either party, which is not provided for in the contract, and which creates an unforeseeable, radically different deal that it's unfair to hold the parties to. Um, frustration, as you say, hasn't been successfully argued in relation to a lease in England and Wales. And following the Canary Wharf decision, I think it's unlikely, or sorry, I should say, I think it's likely to remain an uphill struggle for tenants to mount a successful frustration argument in relation to COVID. If the terms of the contract deal with the event that could happen, then there is no frustration. So in the Canary Wharf case, the EMA tried to argue that its lease would be frustrated by Brexit. However, the High Court held that the alienation provisions permitted the EMA to assign its lease, which it ultimately did, and therefore there was no frustration because the lease contemplated 
that the EMA could leave the premises and assign the lease. There might be some scope for argument based on a 2003 decision from Hong Kong, and we'll add details to the podcast landing page for those interested, which arose out of the SARS outbreak, where the court held that where an isolation order prevented access to the premises for a period of 10 days out of a two-year term, the tenancy had not been frustrated. But I think from that, it is possible to see an argument that if the lease was for a shorter period and the, the sort of closure period due to COVID was lengthy, then that might alter the position. And I think as we find ourselves in, the, in a third national lockdown, the period of time in which some premises may have been closed could be a lot longer relative to the length of the particular lease. And that's probably quite different from where we were back in um, March last year and the first lockdown. So, and as others have said, I think we're likely to see some of these arguments play out over the uh, next year. Yes, that's a very good point. I mean, we're always saying it as lawyers, aren't we? But every case depends on its own facts and its own circumstances. And as you say, Laura, frustration, the length of the contract is an important factor, isn't it? So, um, mm, well, another another interesting avenue. So we'll wait for this summary judgment application, see where we get to. But I mean, however the courts decide to approach existing lease obligation and any implied terms and that sort of thing, um, I think we're probably all going to agree there is bound to be a lot of argument ahead when it comes to the terms of renewal leases under the 1954 Act. Um, We've been talking to various people about that um, over the last uh, nine months. Uh, So, for example, I understand that some tenants are looking for clauses to reduce or uh, even remove their liability to pay rent where they're unable to use their premises. Um, Toby, do you think those types of clauses are likely to be allowed by the courts? Well, um, Emma, Section 34.3 allows the court, if it thinks fit when determining the rent, to further determine that the terms of the new tenancy should include provision for varying the rent. And these rent suspension or reduction clauses uh, may not be unarguable on that basis in the right case. But I think that tenants are likely to face an uphill struggle to justify their inclusion. Certainly a reduction to nil seems to me to be very optimistic because the tenant will still have its tenancy at the premises. It can store its things there, exclude others and the like. The clause reducing the rent, of course, seeks to shift the commercial risk of the pandemic onto an unwilling landlord. Without these clauses, the tenant is still able to operate its business based on the same allocation of risk as it had under the existing tenancy. The policy of the 54 Act, it seems to me, isn't to shield the tenant's business from market forces. The landlord's interest in a letting, of course, is to obtain a periodic income in the form of rent. Uh, The tenant's interest is in running its business from the premises. And the question that tenants advancing these arguments will have to address is the landlord doesn't share in the profits of the tenant's business absent a turnover rent. So why should it share in the risks? A a tenant seeking this sort of clause might also need to adduce evidence to the effect that uh, parties operating in the market have agreed substantially reduced rents during the pandemic or rent suspension clauses for periods of lockdown, because otherwise the court's less likely to be inclined to make provision for future lockdowns. Another question is, is it actually worth it for the tenant to obtain this sort of clause? After all, the rent is going to be determined in light of the terms of the new tenancy. So there's a real danger for a tenant that persuades the court to insert these clauses that the market rent then determined might increase as a result of the inclusion of an onerous term. Uh, or that the court might be persuaded to impose some sort of early rent review as a quid pro quo to balance out the risk uh, to the tenant and the landlord. Uh, So while these rent reduction or suspension clauses might be arguable in the right case, tenants seeking whether to seek such clauses 
uh, or considering whether to seek such clauses, would be wise, I think, to obtain specialist valuation advice and legal advice before they commence those, those sorts of arguments. Yes, that's a really good point, actually, because one of the other points I've been raising with people who, you know, obviously there's a number of tenants keen on pursuing turnover rents. Uh, and one of the points I've been making there is just be a bit careful because, you know, when you come to exercise the break option in relation to turnover rents, the drafting, you know, has to be so careful. Um, and it can cause real headaches when you're trying to break a lease and there's a turnover rent, um, you know, because it's not straightforward, you know, to determine what the rent is that should be paid by the break date always. Um, so, yes, yeah, so you, you always have to kind of look at the downsides, don't you, as well as the potential upsides of these arguments. Let's move on from COVID. We're, we, let's take a break uh, and uh, think about some other topics. We know it's going to be a busy year for cases relating to the Electronic Communications Code, uh, including before the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court. I feel as if we achieved very little clarity on the code during 2020. Do you agree with me? Um, do you think that the judgments we're expecting this year are going to offer enough guidance to reduce the volume of disputes between landowners and telecoms operators? Are we going to see any narrowing of issues this year? Toby, give me some hope. Well, I'm optimistic that we will, yes. I think the first point I'd make is we did get some clarity on parts of the code in 2020. Um, so, for example, we know from University of Arts London that there's no maximum period for interim code rights. And the tribunal has considered, in certain cases, a particular disputed terms. So there's been a certain narrowing of, of those issues. We've also had in December the first detailed decision on consideration and compensation uh, under Part Five of the Code in On Tower and JH and FW Green Limited. But I, I take your point. It seems to me the main reason why it might feel that there's been a, a lack of clarity about how the code operates is because of the outstanding appeals of the Supreme Court in Compton Beecham. In that case, the Court of Appeal decided that the operator in situ could not rely upon paragraph 20 of the code to obtain new code rights. Tribunal's decisions in Ashlock and in Archiva and AP Wireless applied that decision. And in Ashlock, the tribunal held that the operator in occupation under a 54 Act continuation tenancy could not rely on part five of the code to obtain a new tenancy, but instead had to rely on the 54 Act. In Archiva, the tribunal held that where an operator occupied the site under a tenancy at will arising after the expiration of a written agreement, that wasn't a subsisting agreement for the purposes of the transitional provisions. And the result was that the operator could neither rely on part five of the code or on part four. And so it was left as a result of Compton Beach and unable to, to get the code rights it was seeking. Um, appeals in all three of those cases are anticipated this year. And the issues arising in those appeals are fundamental to the, the structure and the operation of the code, because they determine what the appropriate legislation might be, if any, uh, for the purpose of operators obtaining new rights at existing sites. Should the operator use Part 4 or Part 5 or the 54 Act, or is there no statutory recourse available to it at all? While matters like those, which are quite fundamental, remain unsettled, uh, there are large numbers of sites where the proper approach for operators for obtaining new rights just remains unclear. And as I understand it, there are a number of stayed references in the upper tribunal pending the outcome of, of some of those appeals. Whichever results the Supreme Court might reach in Compton Beecham, uh, one might hope that their decision will provide some clarity as to how the code is supposed to work, so that the parties can then proceed to have the sorts of disputes that the code anticipated them having, without so many jurisdictional bun fights needing to be contested as preliminary issues. However, 
a, a note of caution, other issues might well arise as a result of whatever decisions are reached in those cases, especially in the short term. And there's plenty of scope for other disputes to arise as to the proper construction of the code. Um, it is, after all, no model of clarity. The last point I'd make is, as well as the anticipated appeals, it's also likely that the tribunal will this year have cause to give further consideration to valuation disputes under the code. Valuation is often the main sticking point between the parties in code disputes. So the more the valuation provisions of the code are judicially interpreted and applied, the less scope there may be for a vastly differing valuation methodology to be deployed. And the parties then might hopefully be able to more easily reach agreement. Well, let's hope so. I mean, and as you say, Toby, you know, that's what sort of keeps coming across to me. There are fundamental issues here that need to be resolved so that everybody can get the clarity on how the code works. But, you know, the benefit of that clarity is very clear for the operators. But for landowners who are having to also incur costs on this litigation, for whom there isn't necessarily the same kind of rollout benefit, if you know what I mean, you don't have the same number of sites with apparatus, um, you know, this is proving to be a very costly exercise and a very frustrating one. Um, I mean, I don't know what you think, Guy, and what you see, but I see some extraordinarily cross landowners. You're quite right, Emma. I mean, one vast benefit, although it may not be seen like that by everybody, is that we've got a very, very classy tribunal in charge of resolving these disputes. And in Martin, Roger and Liz Cook in particular, uh, we've got two judges who know their topic backwards and who arrive at very, very skilled and very fast decisions and gradually uh, picking off all, all the, the big questions out there. I mean, over the course of this year, we found out what the rent was for a you know, rooftop, what the rent was for a corner of a field, what the rent was for a car park, you know, gradually it's all being tied down. Now, of course, there are big issues out there remaining, some of which are going to be litigated in the higher courts, but still, um, we have reason to be very, very grateful to the upper tribunal lands chamber, uh, you know, quite unlike some other areas in which we practice. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it's again, it's one of the things I have been grateful for is, again, this pragmatism where those cases have been allocated to people who really understand this, you know, extremely complicated piece of legislation um, and who can bring the consistency of decision making as well, which I think is so valuable. And unfortunately, we, we suffer not really having that um, a lot of the time, I think the quality of decision making and you know this consistency you know that is a positive um it's just um <laughs> it's very frustrating for landowners i think all these arguments that are still out there and uh, laura the continuing uncertainties that we've got when it comes to the code um obviously they're still stagnating the market for telecom sites and that's causing significant issues for developers as much as operators it begs the question, I think, whether it might be better for Parliament to intervene and amend the code to improve its clarity in some areas. Uh, is there any chance of that, do you think? Or is Parliament just going to be too busy for the foreseeable future? Parliament certainly has a lot on its plate during uh, 2021. Of course, it will continue to consider legislation around COVID and Brexit-related issues. Um, but aside from those, there is currently a piece of legislation passing through Parliament which will be relevant to those involved with the code and that's the Telecommunications Infrastructure Leasehold Property Bill which intends to amend the code to make it easier for operators to install broadband infrastructure in blocks of flats and it deals with the situation where a landlord doesn't reply to requests 
for access. So a small sort of change to the code, but um, a change nonetheless. Parliament's also going to be busy looking at building safety. The draft building safety bill is likely to come before Parliament during 2021, as it was subject to pre-legislative scrutiny during 2020. That bill intends to introduce an enhanced building safety regime for high-rise residential buildings and also new duties around building safety during the life cycle of a building from construction through to occupation. There's also the fire safety bill, which is currently making its way through Parliament and will extend existing legislation in relation to fire safety to multi-occupied residential buildings, including the building structure, external walls and common parts. We could also see draft legislation presented to Parliament in relation to the government's proposals to ban Section 21 notices, which is the so-called no-fault eviction notices and also assured short-hold tenancies in the private rented sector. And just today, as we record this, the government has also announced that the ban on ground rents in new leases will be looked at by Parliament in the upcoming session. So there will be quite a lot happening in 2021. Yes, as we thought. So everyone's got a busy year ahead. I think one other area where we're going to have some interesting cases uh, in the property sphere is on injunctions, not least in the Tate Gallery case. Um, Given Guy's involvement in that, I won't ask for predictions on the judgment. Um, But I am interested to discuss what might come next in another case we talked about a lot last year, which was Housing Solutions and Alexander Devine Children's Cancer Trust. And there may be arguments here over whether the buildings erected in breach of the restrictive covenant should be demolished. Uh, Laura, let's start with a reminder, if you don't mind, um, uh, to our listeners about what the Alexander Devine case was actually about. Yes, so this was a Supreme Court decision about the discharge of restrictive covenants under the statutory procedure contained in Section 84 of the Law of Property Act 1925. And what happened here was that the developer obtained planning permission to build 23 affordable housing units and built 13 of them in breach of restrictive covenants affecting part of the land. The neighbouring trust, which was entitled to the benefit of the covenants, intended to build a hospice on its land, which would have been overlooked by the housing units. The developer went ahead and built the development and then transferred the units to a housing association, Housing Solutions Limited. The upper tribunal allowed the restrictive covenants to be modified, but both the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court disagreed. The Supreme Court felt that the discretion should be exercised to refuse the proposed release of the covenant. And they gave particular weight to the fact that the developer would have been able here to build the development in a way which would not have breached the restrictive covenants as it could have built the units on the part of the land not subject to the restrictions. So the result is that the restrictive covenants were not discharged or modified, and the arguments will now turn to whether or not the buildings um, are to be demolished. Which is a big question. Guy, when I read this judgment, it reminded me of how case law was developed in relation to rights of light, um, because, as you you all know only too well in that area, um, although the Supreme Court, through Coventry and Lawrence, emphasised the importance of the balancing exercise when it comes to deciding whether to grant injunctions, we have still seen courts willing to order buildings to be adjusted to protect light, particularly where a developer's conduct is frowned on. Um, It feels to me as if the courts are keen to send the message that parties 
parties shouldn't risk breaching property rights, including restrictive covenants, um, and should sort things out properly before they do their planned developments so the courts don't have to get involved in these tricky balancing exercises. Um, do you think there's a change of emphasis here by the courts, or is the position the same as it always has been, and it's just we happen to have had some cases which give the courts the opportunity to emphasise the importance of parties' conduct? Really interesting question, Emma. It's quite difficult to call it. Uh, there's also an interesting thing going on here about the hierarchy of the courts, which I've noticed. So in the courts where I practice, uh, high court, county court, uh, judges are in the real world, more or less, and they come across uh, cases like this where property rights have been infringed day in, day out, and they get used to dealing with them and the question whether an injunction should be granted or whether there should be damages in lieu is one which is played out in front of them on a virtually daily basis. So nothing, no principle is really new here. What's different about uh, the Supreme Court in Alexander Devine, though, is the, the sort of lofty attitude it, it took to uh, bad conduct by a party um, I thought it was really very sniffy about um, what it regarded as being bad conduct in this case. And that's not something which you find really resonating to the same extent at the lower levels of the courts. You quite often find this for the Supreme Court. It's, um, you know, it's a bunch of fairly elderly judges at the tops of their careers who are quite patrician in their attitudes to law-breaking. Uh, that really isn't reflected all the way down through the court system. As it happens, at the beginning of uh, last year, I did do uh, a rights of right injunction case, and we got an injunction requiring a building to be part demolished. That's very, very rare, though. I think the attitude of the courts is largely, certainly at the coal case, that if a good building is being constructed, then really it would be extraordinary for the court to use its powers to order it to be taken down. And I think that will continue to be the case, notwithstanding what the Supreme Court has seen fit to deliver in Alexander Devine. And that, that's my view. The trouble is this is an area where the exercise of a discretion is involved and it's very, very hard to lay down any rules. And Courts don't like rules in this area where discretions are concerned. Uh, you know, half, half the thing which Coventry and Lawrence addressed was the rules laid down by the Court of Appeal in Shelfer in the 20th century, and oh, 19th century, and it really said, no, we should tear that up. It's a free-flowing exercise of discretion, and each court should apply it without being trammeled by mechanistic rules. So, very difficult to have any form of structured approach to whether an injunction might be granted in the future. But I think once something's been built, it's extremely unlikely that any court's going to say, take it down. I'm always reminded of um, some very wise advice that um, a former boss of mine once gave me, which is uh, when we talk about the uncertainty of litigation, what we mean is the judges. <laughs> Um, perhaps that's a, an appropriate point to, to bring things to a close. Um, thank you very much all for your interesting thoughts on the year ahead. Um, sounds like we've got a lot uh, going to keep us busy and interested. Thank you to our listeners for joining us. We wish you all uh, a healthy and happy 2021. Stay safe. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. 